president and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETF Sponsor. I'm joined in the studio today by Brad Crom, who's an Associate Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, and also Ben Levine, who is CIO at 3D Asset Management. We're going to be talking with these guys uh, about markets, their views, 3D's asset allocation approach. Uh, before I, I get to Ben, I'm going to get some commentary from Professor Siegel. Uh, he's my co-host, uh, a Wharton Fines professor, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note that uh, Brad and I are registered representatives of Foreside Fund Services, and Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor tied to an offer of selling investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. On the second half of the show, we're going to be bringing in Marty Fridson, who's really an expert on the high-yield bond market. We're looking forward to talking to, to Marty in the second part of the program. But, Professor, maybe we could get some quick comments. Uh, we had the employment report, uh, the markets. Yes. What's your, your general thought on how, how the employment report is shaping up for the Fed? I know you're focused on that all the time. Yeah. Um, thank you, Jeremy. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, not a good re- uh, report, uh, clearly. I mean, we fell 44,000 short, and we revised down 66,000 on the previous two months. And, um, and the unemployment ticked down again to 4.3. But uh, the stocks are up. Why are stocks up? The dollar is down, and the interest rates are way down. The dollar is now falling all the way back down to pre-election levels. This is good for stocks, good for S&P 500 stocks, not as good for the Russell, and that's why it's lagging, very good for tech stocks. And that's why they're soaring, lower interest rates are not good for the financials, but they're good for the home builders and all those that borrow. Uh, and that's, that, so stocks are driven up by a big fall as interest rates. Everyone thought interest rates were, the, we've been talking about this so long, slam dunk to go up. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we got a new, uh, interim low on, on the 10-year. Uh, um, well, you know, it, it's disappointing. Unemployment rate is enough, down 4.3. That's a 16-year low. It broke below that 4, 4, 4 barrier that we talked about a month ago, now down to the lowest level since um, the turn of the century. Um, uh, and yet, and yet, uh, no real wage inflation. And that is encouraging uh, average hourly earnings, uh, you know, up only two tenths year over year, up 2.5. This is way down from uh, over three that it was uh, uh, late last year and earlier this year. So we're, we're even though we're way below what's called the natural rate, we do not see any pressure on those wages, despite even anecdotal evidence. A little disappointing again. The participation rate, which bumped upward when Trump, when Trump was elected. Uh, partly because a lot of people thought there were going to be jobs available. Of course, there is nothing that's being done on the infrastructure, nothing that's being done on that domestic front. Uh, and you see people leaving the labor market again, so the participation rate is falling. Now, it has stabilized over the last two years after a very precipitous uh, drop during the Obama administration. So uh, the big picture, of course, is it'll still drift down because of demographic factors. But but nonetheless, um the Trump bump on the participation rate, which I was really hoping would continue, uh, is is flagging uh, at this point. Uh, trade balance news that came out of the uh, was not great. Uh, it looks like uh, we may be even below three on the second uh, quarter. Uh, so we're still stuck in that two percent mode. So the, the Fed, well, the Fed will go on June because of four point three percent but they clearly see a fall in the payroll. They just clearly see a flattening of the curve. I mean, a real flattening of the curve, uh, you know, with a 10-year dropping you know, down to point one handle, and uh, they're going to be moving, you know, pushing the funds rate up to 1%. So that slope is going down. They'll be very, very cautious. I mean, at this point, uh, unless things really pick up in the second half, 
certainly I cannot see more than one increase uh, or than the June increase uh, in the Fed funds rate. Yeah, one of the the other big news this week we saw we had Trump we had you know everything's going around Trump corporate tax changes we all have been talking about that anything that you're taking from his backing out of the Paris uh, the Paris plans there uh, you know I, I it's it's not a big deal you know oil is down as expected there'll be you know a little less oil restriction a lot of companies are staying in any 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 state government or federal government. And they've been a, a, a state government or or not federal government or, or corporations can still join and and and, and have their own goals and um, you know this is a long range project and uh, you know Trump is not going to be president forever um, so you know we may get back into it and actually he called for renegotiation more than just he says I'm dropping out on the current and he pretty well had to I mean he basically promised his base that that would be a huge a reversal on the base. And don't forget, even the Republican Party has been climate skeptical. So he's not even bucking the Republican Party here. Not a surprising move, uh, really. And I don't expect that to have uh, real deep implications. I mean, uh, the, it's, uh, the fracking and the dramatic cost of fracking are by far the most important influence here on, on the price of oil. Um, and um, um, that looks like it's keeping it under 50 and could keep it under 50 for, for quite a while. Um, Brad, Ben, any questions for the professor before we before we let him go? Yeah, professor. Uh, hi, this is Brad. Uh, I was curious yes. what your thoughts were. I know that you did highlight this flattening in the yield curve. Uh, I just pulled it up yeah. on Bloomberg. It looks like we're at about 87 basis points between U.S. two years and 10 years. How much of a function is that? Is that, you know, a lot of these, the, the Trump bump, in terms of economic output, we, we can separate, you know, what's going on in the real economy versus what's going on um, in the stock market. But but really, what's going to get this um, trend to, to ultimately stop and then potentially turn around and, and start seeing we the yield curve start see, to see? I mean, obviously, we need to see more inflation and or more real growth. And we're not seeing either of them. Um, and we're stuck in the 2% mode that has not accelerated despite good. I mean, the only somewhat good thing is less people mean productivity isn't post negative it's it's going to be slightly better still very bad productivity numbers so we're not getting the economy really going out of the it's not out of the rut inflation is low low uh, you know oil is low wages not being pushed up that's pushing the the tenure down um and the fed uh, is on this path but they look at the tenure i mean they're committed i think for june um, uh, but uh, there's going to be a lot of debate, and if if it stays in a rut, we may not see one in September and December. Uh, that's against odds now. But if we stay in a rut and inflation stays low, and we see labor force growth, um, uh, labor payrolls slow down to the hundred thousand eighty to hundred thousand range, um, we may say we, we it, it it really might be. Um, uh, just the June hike, but this is really too early. But uh, it's you can you can explain it. Low inflation, lower than expected inflation, lower than expected growth, are both pushing down uh, the uh, the long end of the curve. Hi, Professor Siegel. This is Ben Levine with 3D Asset Management. Yes, um, ben. What does this employment report do to the Fed's longer-term plans of um, uh, normalizing their balance sheet, meaning trying that, to you know, let... That, that gets also... Well, don't forget, if they normalize the balance sheet, that'll put proper pressure on the mm -hmm. longs. And so they may not be that much worried about it. I mean, it should be factored in, but is it? It depends on the pace. They, they claimed in their last meeting it would be very, very cautious. Um, uh, don't forget, they want to get rid of the MBS first. So, I mean, I know Marty in the second half, which I can't stay for, I know we'll talk a little bit maybe about some of those spreads. Um, I think MBS is first and then Treasury second. So there's no immediate impact. There may be a mixture of two-thirds, three-quarters MBSs, one-quarter uh, Treasuries. It's going to be a slow drip. That depends on if we get a big tax cut from the Republicans with no offsetting gain, that's going to throw another a few hundred billion dollars of loans onto the market, that's going to put pressure on that long end, uh, in my opinion, even with low inflation and uh, low real growth. But at this particular point, until we know where that goes, 
uh, those are the two primary factors, I think, pushing down the long end. Well, Professor, always good to hear from you. Have a, have a good rest of the afternoon. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Uh, we're going to continue our conversation here. Brad Crum, Associate Director of Research at Wisdom Tree in the studio with me. Ben Levine, thanks for coming down. CIO of 3D Asset Management. Uh, you sit on the Executive Management Committee, work on portfolios at 3D. Maybe you could tell us a little bit. Uh, I should I should just note for, for full disclosure, 3D is a client of Wisdom Tree, and you do uh, service our 401k plan for mm-hmm. us. Uh, so thank you for, for that, that uh, working relationship we have together. But perhaps give us a little bit about your background um, and then we'll talk a little bit about 3D's, 3D's uh, program, sir. Sure. Thank you for having me on. My background, I started my career in the mid-90s just out of college uh, on the investment consulting side, uh, working with pension plans, foundations, endowments, working with consultants, and my primary focus was conducting manager research on behalf of our institutional client base. Um, I did that for about eight years or so, and then I transitioned over to the buy side where, um, due to a a life change and right after business school, my wife and I decided to pick up stakes from LA, move out to the East Coast, to to Boston, and I joined a firm doing quantitative equity portfolio management, and that's how I built up my my quantitative equity background. And also, uh, towards the end of the tenure on that, I was also researching ETFs, and uh, it just so happened an opportunity came up at uh, 3D, a boutique investment firm focused on servicing the advisor uh, marketplace with model portfolio management solutions that they were looking for an investment strategist, a CIO, to oversee their program. And so I joined the firm in September of 2015. And um, what we do at 3D is manage ETF model portfolios, which include Wisdom Tree ETFs in there, among others. We, it is an open architecture platform, so we're not wedded to one particular family. And we've been running ETF model portfolios for just over 10 years now. Uh, the firm was founded in 2006 by John O'Connor, Cheryl O'Connor, and Wayne Connors. And what they started, the, the firm started off as, as what's called a DFA TAMP. For our audience who's familiar with dimensional funds, FAMA French, um, the the model in the mid 2000s was to offer DFA model portfolios because at the time DFA funds were restricted to um, advisors that were approved by DFA. But they uh, their model was to offer DFA model portfolios to advisors, as as well as provide what's called turnkey asset management support, basically handling a lot of mid and back office functions. Uh, so that advisors can focus more of their time building up their own practice, meeting with clients and so forth, rather than being chained to the office, to their screen, having to manage portfolios, manage other people, handling paperwork, custodians, and so forth. Um, One year into the firm's history, the firm moved from uh, DFA model portfolios to ETFs. And the reason being is, is that what, what essentially the, the core principles of DFA are fo- focus on global diversification, long-term strategic investing, and what is called factor-based investing. And factor-based investing is just another way of saying instead of investing in the market, I'm going to invest in a basket portfolio is defined by a different set of rules. Uh, and in the case of DFA, those rules are value-driven rules and, and small-cap-driven rules. So portfolios that have a tilt towards less expensive stocks, uh, smaller stocks versus the broader market. Well, those rules-driven approaches were uh, becoming starting to become adopted by ETF providers starting in the mid-2000s. Uh, and I think WisdomTree is being w- one of the pioneers of that when they rolled out their earnings-based and dividend-based ETF products. And, and so the firm felt that it made sense to transition from uh, DFA to ETFs, and, and part of that is because of the underlying uh, superior structure of the ETF versus the open-end mutual fund. We can get into that later yeah. if you want. But um, but in essence, taking those core DFA investment principles and applying to the ETF space and and uh, uh, ETF providers like WisdomTree, PowerShares, FlexShares, and, and other providers who are starting to come out with alternative-weighted or factor-weighted ETF portfolios made sense. And, and so they were able to maintain those core investment principles but apply it using different vehicles. And, and so we offer our global equity ETF portfolios and fixed-income ETF portfolios in different asset allocation blends 
centered around targeted rates of return. And it's, it's primarily for not just wealth uh, accumulation, but, uh, but more of our you know, focus has been increasingly on retirement income. Uh, through the last several years at 3D, we actually developed our own program, retirement income program called Income Conductor, which we're in the process of spinning off as a standalone uh, entity. But in essence, it's a way for advisors to develop custom retirement income programs that aren't just based on the 4% systematic withdrawal rule, but actually have a, a, a deep integrated plan put into place. And 3D serves as kind of a core offering with, within those. Yeah, so let's, let's break into a few of these conversations. So one, it's interesting uh, how started at the DFA firm and, and, and gravitated away from just DFA towards the ETF portfolios. I, I applaud you for that. Why do you think more people, DFA advisors, haven't embraced ETF-only portfolios? Or why has, th- has DFA themselves um, sort of not embraced ETFs more closely, if you have any speculation on that? Uh, well, I don't want to speak on certainly on behalf of DFA, but... Um, Certainly, I've, I've had several years over the years, both on the consulting side and, and on the 3D side, having interacted with DFA, and I have former colleagues, friends who, who work at DFA. But the essential message, and, and uh, please, if anyone from DFA is listening, correct me if I'm wrong later, but really DFA uh, provides cost-efficient ways of accessing areas of the market that have been traditionally accessed by the institutional market, and they do so in a very straightforward manner. Um, the essence of the Fama French literature is, is that most of the risks that you get from the marketplace are the market itself, or beta, size and value. And more recently, they expanded that to include things like quality and asset growth. But really, three factors, five factors explain the bulk of the variance or the risks that you capture in the marketplace, and that includes active management. And what DFA basically, their story is, is that we're going to deliver to you in a much more cost-effective trade-effective um, vehicle, um, what you get out of traditional active management is if you want to take on more risk in the marketplace beyond what is afforded by the market, here are funds that allow you to do so. And, and I think DFA has built up a core following over the years, not just because it's a very straightforward value proposition on what they're doing built based on you know, a long history of academic research, but they do it in a much more um, deliberate manner. Um, they are, I would say, very focused on trade execution, for instance. And, and they will tell you, if you hear their story, that a lot of what their R&D is, is focused on isn't as much on the research side as is on the trading side, making sure that they execute, particularly in less liquid areas in the market, in a much more effective manner that, that their peers aren't able to. Now, but you've discovered ETFs much quicker than they have. So they haven't embraced the structure. Now, they are working with, uh, not to get not to just drill into uh, one of our main competitors here, but um, you know they have embraced it in a sort of partnership agreement with another ETF firm. So it's interesting that they're doing it through another firm. But uh, they, mm-hmm. I, I think they could have gone into ETFs quicker. Um, but let, let's focus a little bit more on 3D, what you guys are doing. Sure. Uh, talk about how you structure portfolios, how you mm-hmm. structure factor. Because uh, you, you have you have having that 3D, uh, 3D view of the world, uh, three dimensions of risk is, I think, what 3D stands for. Talk about how you build your, your equity or your, your overall allocations. Sure. Uh, again, it, it starts with those DFA principles of global diversification, long-term strategic investing, as well as factor-based investing. That most of the risks that are afforded by the marketplace, that are rewarded over the long run, are what we de- what we would deem factor-based risks. Things that have uh, rules of, of, of building a basket of stocks that have some sort of economic, intuitive rationale, a risk-based rationale. And, um, and that have historically worked not just in the U.S. market, but in multiple markets and, and over time. So they're robust, sustainable, and so forth. Um, what we don't do at 3D is tactically position around things like regions, sectors, or even factors themselves. Um, I know a lot of our peers um, make it that a bit large part of their franchise to be able to be adept and, and, and adapt their portfolios um, to either trends within the marketplace or, or be contrarian and so forth. But we focus first and foremost on global diversification, making sure that we have access to global markets. And in case of fixed income, having access to the main fixed income types of risks, which are primarily credit and term structure or duration, interest rate sensitivity. And 
what we do is we provide that core baseline foundational exposure um, to our advisors, but we do so not using traditional market cap weighted portfolios, but factor-based portfolios, um, things that have historical reward investors over the long run. So we'll be invested in what we call single factor and multiple factor type of ETF portfolios, and just you know examples include a value-driven ETF, a dividend-themed ETF. We'll also access different areas of the market, such as emerging market small caps. I think you'll find in a lot of traditional asset allocations, they don't have a dedicated allocation to things like emerging market small cap. Yeah. And, um, and then on the fixed income side, we focus not just on fixed income risks themselves, but how they interact with equity. Because most of the advisors that use 3D use equity and fixed income in tandem with each other so that we're cognizant of the kinds of risks that we're taking in fixed income, not in isolation, but how they interact with equity. Let me just uh, reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Ben Levine, th- CIO of 3D Asset Management. I have Brad Crom, Associate Director of Research in the studio with me. Brad, maybe I'll let you jump into the conversation here. Um, I know Ben has been a uh, an advocate for going beyond factors even in fixed income, maybe, and you, you sort of covered that for us at Wisdom Tree. Maybe we shift the conversation that, in that direction. Yeah, sure. Um, actually, I was going to give uh, Ben another question here and, and want to mm-hmm. understand a little bit more. You know, you, you have these strategic biases that you're putting into your portfolios. Taking a, a step back, kind of what do you see uh, is occurring in, in the current macro landscape? Where do you currently see opportunities or risks from a global asset allocation sure. perspective? I mean, right now, the environment this year has been characterized by the unwinding of the so-called cyclical Trump trade. Um, I call it more of a cyclical reflationary trade because the trends that we were seeing up until more recently actually started happening right after the Brexit decision of last year. So so-called cyclical reflation or uh, initial steepening of the yield curve, inflation expectations actually started rising in July of last year. And and then just the Trump election kind of accelerated that move. And now we're starting to see an unwind of that. This environment right now, is, is, as Professor Siegel alluded to earlier, is the market basically uh, second-guessing the cyclical reflation trade. And so in that vein, what do you do? You pay up for certainty or perceived certainty. You're willing to pay a premium a higher premium for premium stocks because of the you know supposed certainty that comes with it. So the classic Fang stocks of Facebook, Amazon, and so forth. But um, and then uh, and then but we are also starting to see the market pay up for def- defense as well. So for instance, in in May, a, uh, staples and utilities were actually the top performing S and P sectors. Um, and so kind of this, I would say, is you're starting to see investors gravitate towards this Noah Ark type of a, uh, event where you're running for the hills trying to find the high ground because until we get some clarity on the cyclical reflation outlook, which may not happen until you know later second half of this year, it's like, I'm going to hedge my bets for now and and be invested in the marketplace, but, but be in areas that perhaps are perceived as not having more cyclical type of exposures. Sure. And then on the bond side of that, are you thinking of making any changes in the current environment? Well, that, that's what's interesting, because normally in the past, what we've seen in this kind of run for the hills moment is you start to see risk unwind in, in the bond landscape. And you're not seeing it this time around. Partly it's because we already had that correction uh, with oil prices dropping from 100 to $40 and causing a major restructuring of highly levered uh, EMP um, issuers, uh, energy and producers, um, reissue their refinance or, or restructure their debt. But uh, credit spreads are pretty narrow right now and, and in fact continue to narrow despite sort of this drop that we're seeing, this, uh, precipitous drop that we're seeing in, in the 10-year and in uh, inflation expectations and, and this sort of run towards safer type of stocks within within um, within the marketplace. But so right now, is the, if if the investors are concerned about the macro landscape, um, you're not seeing it in the in the fixed income side. The the credit spreads, which tend to be a pretty good leading indicator of any sort of troubles that might emerge in the marketplace, they're they're pretty tame right now. So for the time being, we're maintaining our credit exposures. Uh, we are, I would say, year short on duration overall. Um, although our core allocation uh, to Wisdom Tree ha- uh, is allocated just over just over one year on duration, but um, 
I would say that we're somewhat defensively positioned from an interest rate standpoint, but we still maintain our credit exposures. No, no, you're you're alluding here to some of the core fixed income. We talk about factor investing. Uh, a lot of people are very familiar with factor investing in equities. You have been embracing factor investing and sort of retilting away from market cap in in fixed income as well. I mean, talk talk about how you see what drove you to think about that. You know, what you're looking to get out of that, mm-hmm. and and where you see you know the you think that is going to be a growth area for the for the industry. I do, in the sense that. Um, because of the advent of ETFs and this, um, and we've moved now beyond the proof of concept of whether rules-driven approaches make sense or not, and that can be systematically applied, they can, and they're done at a fraction of the cost of what you get out of traditional active management. So, and if you think about your traditional active core bond manager, what they're really doing is they're positioning themselves around main systematic risks within the marketplace. There's duration or interest rate sensitivity. There's credit. How much credit risk are you taking versus, say, governments and uh, securities and so forth? And then there are other types of ancillary types of uh, risks and so forth. But, but now with the advent of ETFs, you're bringing not only more transparency, but you're bringing basically a much more systematic approach to accessing areas of the market that historically have been just afforded to the professional buy-side investor. And, and so um, now what we're seeing is the rollout of factor-driven um, portfolio construction so that rather than uh, waiting a, um, a basket of debt security based on how much issue uh, or how much debt outstanding there is, um, which I think is kind of a flawed way of constructing a fixed income index, which is to allocate more of your capital to the riskiest sectors of the market. Um, we're now seeing things like fundamentally weighted indices, where rather than allocating based on how much issuance there is, you allocate based on the credit quality of the firm, um, based on certain balance sheet metrics, cash flow, coverage, and so forth, and you assign higher scores to those issuers and, and hence a higher weight to those. You also see some issue uh, ETF issuers uh, come out with momentum um, uh, driven approaches to allocating to fixed fixed income sectors. So momentum uh, not only has been well documented in equities, but it also in fixed income. So things that trend in fixed income tend to continue to trend in fixed income. And then, and more often than not, you're better off riding that trend rather than trying to bet against it. Very good. Um, talk a little bit about, we, we got a f- few more minutes in the top half of our show before we're going to start bringing in Marty Fritzen. Um, Maybe talk a little bit about your client base, the types of clients you're serving, and 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 who should be looking to for for three D. Sure, as I said, the turnkey asset management uh, program or or TAMP model is is think of it as more or less as an outsource solution for advisors, primarily ones that are building up their practice uh, that don't have a strong centralized home office support and so forth. Uh, what we do basically is is take a lot of the uh, investment-related functions uh, on our shoulders, and and allow the advisor to focus more on building up their their practice. and 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 I think the advisor community is realizing more and more that the alpha that they bring to their clients isn't from how much they are outperforming their own portfolios, but how much their how much value they're bringing to the planning side. And retirement income is is a good example. And I know we don't have enough time to get into that, but a lot of advisors can bring more value to financial planning itself as opposed to you know, trying to add alpha, managing their own portfolios. And not only that, but it's, it takes a lot of their time and so forth. So we offer straightforward, cost-effective ETF portfolios that take advantage of historically rewarded areas of the market uh, based on academic research. We dynamically manage those. We, 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 we don't make frequent model changes, um, but we will uh, change models, uh, exposures based on market conditions. Um, that makes us distinctive versus kind of a pure static, bury it and forget it type of portfolio. Uh, we also offer a lot of mid and back office support. Uh, we have a what I would consider uh, number one uh, blue ribbon client service team that that really does hands-on servicing with our advisors, handles the custodial interactions, all the paperwork, and and we do you know we as a as a Advisors work through us as a solicitor on the TAM side, so we handle all the billing on their behalf and so forth. So we we take care of a lot of those kind of mid and back office operations that advisors realize. Wow, this takes up a lot of you know my precious resource, which is time, 
in, in terms of not only having to be chained to my desk, focusing on how the portfolios are performing, but also having to be on the phone with the custodians or having to do things like distributions and, and handling paperwork and so forth. So we, we take care of a lot of that. And then if advisors just want to access our model portfolios, they can do it through, uh, if they subscribe to third-party platforms like InvestNet or Adhesion, um, we, they can also access us uh, on the 401k side as well through their record keepers uh, because we're on a couple of platforms as well. So then, and we make our models available on those platforms. Very good. Uh, I think we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to be back. You're going to stay with us for the second part sure. of the conversation. We're going to have Marty Fritzen, CIO of Lehman Livian Fritzen Advisors, LLC. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You'll be, we'll be back after a short break. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. I'd like to welcome to the second part of our program, Martin Fridson. Uh, he's the CIO of Lehman Livian Fridson Advisors. He's a real legend in the high-yield world. His background, uh, reading from his bio here, he's been at Solomon, Morgan Stanley, Merrill. Uh, he's been known for his credit work uh, for nine consecutive years, number one in the high-yield strategy category for institutional investors, All-America Research Survey. Really, what an impressive feat. Uh, in 2000, Green Magazine called Financial Statement Analysis, one of the most useful investment books ever. Uh, Marty, welcome back to our program. Great to be here. Uh, I've got two fixed income guys here in the studio. Brad Crom, he's uh, Associate Director of Research at, at my firm, Wisdom Tree. We've got Ben Levine, CIO of 3D Asset Management. Uh, maybe you could start off our conversation, focus so much on the high yield market. We've got spreads coming down pretty tight. I mean, how would you categorize the, the high yield market generally here today? Well, it's been doing very well, and the fundamentals are sound. The uh, default rate is projected to be just 3% over the next 12 months. Uh, that's the forecast from Moody's as well as really the other rating agencies are right in the same ballpark. And to put that in perspective, the historical average is around 4.5% per year. Uh, now, that being said, there are not very many average years. You tend to have uh, some that are higher and some that are lower, and you know, the average comes out to 45 But nonetheless, that's a pretty good fundamentals, and that's reflecting uh, an economy that's still growing, uh, not uh, at the rate uh, we've seen historically, but uh, uh, fast enough to uh, keep the companies in uh, pretty good shape for the most part. Now, the, the bad news is that the market recognizes all this and uh, has, is putting a pretty high price on this debt because of uh, the low interest rates, there are not a lot of other alternatives for investors looking for income. So the yield is just about 5.5%. And the um, measure in terms of valuation, what really matters is the spread, uh, the yield difference between uh, high-yield bonds and the underlying Treasury yields. And and. Given the conditions that we have, according to analysis that I run every month, uh, if you look at the risk factors, which include the credit availability, uh, the um, uh, economic indicators, and the level of Treasury yields, uh, historically, when we've been at a total risk level uh, determined by those factors, the uh, yield premium or how much extra yield you're getting for uh, high-yield bonds over treasuries has been just about six percentage points, or 600 basis points. Currently, it's uh, about 375. Uh, that's a difference of you know, 225. And you know, 125, by our analysis, constitutes an extreme of richness uh, or overvaluation. So it gives you an idea of uh, how much of an extreme things are really at right now. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about where, you know, how, what are the big factors? Is it just the whole search for yield? People are, you know, have nowhere else to go, so this is where they're going. Is there other things that you would be suggesting would be more attractive than the high-yield bond market? Well, that's the challenge to find something that's uh, a better bet. Um, now, within the income category, <clears throat> which includes not only bonds but also uh, more equity-like instruments. Uh, we actually see better value there in general, um, so that would include uh, instruments such as uh, preferred uh, securities, REITs, 
um, and especially master limited partnerships, which are still feeling some of the um, after effects of the drop in oil prices uh, over the last couple of years. Although oil prices have recovered, there's still uh, some pressure. And, and, and that, by the way, includes pipeline companies, which are really not directly affected in terms of their earnings by the uh, price of oil or natural gas. They're just charging a toll on people running it through the uh, running the oil or gas through their pipeline, but they got hit nonetheless. So in general, um, th- those categories are more attractive by historical valuation measures than uh, bonds, whether investment grade or high yield. And um, it, yeah, it, it really is that uh, search for yield, but it's coupled with a confidence. You know, the VIX, as I think has been widely reported, has been at record low levels. This is the uh, so-called fear gauge, a measure of expected volatility in the stock market. And that overvaluation in uh, the analysis I do of high yield uh, generally coincides with low readings on the VIX. And, you know, the average for VIX is right around 20. It's been in uh, the nine range recently, so quite an extreme. And what that indicates is that investors are very complacent. Um, Yeah, they realize that you're not getting paid all that well uh, for the risk that you're taking. But as long as the economy remains firm and nothing happens, and the, uh, on the financial front, the monetary front, uh, you'll do better by owning the higher-yielding security. Um, at some point, that perception will change, but it's, uh, I, I don't have any method of predicting exactly when that will happen. So you may very well do better uh, for a while more, uh, even though you're being un- undercompensated for the risk of owning high-yield bonds. Yeah, good afternoon, Marty. It's uh, Brad here in the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted. I was curious if you had some thoughts about what we're seeing in terms of the primary issuance market. Uh, it seems like you're. You're. I think we might have just had a, a record quarter in the first quarter of this year, in terms of new companies borrowing more. So, so generally using, uh, you know, this pullback in rates as an opportunity to to refinance at cheaper levels. Um, I know you've also done a, a fairly extensive amount of analysis based on, you know, some of the changes that may have occurred in bond covenants. Um, in this most recent cycle, you know, do you get a sense? Uh, certainly, the market is saying that that you know these are good risks worth taking, um, and maybe they're they're not demanding the same premiums that you would have seen um, from some of these businesses in past credit cycles. But but did you have any any thoughts on on issuance or, or covenants or, or kind of where you see those trends developing? Yeah, um, there's been a steady decline in covenant protection really over about the last six years, although it, over the last two years, it has actually bottomed out. Um, Moody's does a series that actually uh, tracks the overall quality of covenants of new high-yield issues, and I do a, a refinement of that to take out some of the statistical noise that's related to the fact that the mix of ratings uh, within speculative grade, double B, single B, and triple C, that varies from month to month. So I I take out that noise. But by both of our measures, uh, the covenant quality has bottomed out and actually started to improve a little bit over the last couple of months, which is a little surprising because demand demand has been so brisk. Um, But uh, there's concern uh, raised about this, you know, a large percentage of the issues now uh, um, come as uh, what we refer to as covenant light deals. So they don't lack uh, a couple of the basic protections that have been um, have been very standard uh, in, in the past. So there is some concern about how that will play out in the next cycle. There was. Also, some concern going into the Great Recession and the global financial crisis on this point. Um, there, there was a feeling that companies, because they didn't have covenants that would uh, trip defaults, uh, they would, um, you know, just uh, be able to fritter away more assets before they finally inevitably went bankrupt, and therefore there would be less to recover when they did. 
Uh, that wasn't really tested that well in the last cycle because the Fed came in and reliquified the system so aggressively that companies that were seemingly surely headed for default managed to survive. So we didn't get a real test uh, this time around. We may, and we'll see how it uh, works out. You know, there's another view on this, uh, which is that uh, it's you know, the the lack of covenants is a positive thing in the sense that some companies that really shouldn't default uh, are able to survive, get through the recession, and that's a good thing because neither the company nor the uh, the investors have to bear the costs and waiting uh, time of companies going through that uh, bankruptcy. So, um, you know, again, there's uh, still some uh, some questions to be answered in the next uh, downturn. Let me uh, jump back here, reintroduce our guest. We have Marty Fridson. Uh, he is a high-yield bond expert. We've got in the studio here Ben Levine, CIO of 3D Asset Management, Brad Crom, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, and, and Marty, wh- talking about just how this high-yield market is being impacted, one of the things I, I sort of emailed you about, I'm, I'm curious to just to weigh in while we have you, an expert on the program, on just how ETFs are impacting the high-yield market. We hear a lot of commentary that the high-yield bond ETFs is one of the big risk sources in the market, that they're distorting the market, that they're bringing liquidity and users of high-yield bonds that may not have accessed it if it was a less liquid instrument. Uh, I'm just curious for you to weigh in and how you think the high-yield the high yield market being impacted by sort of ETF flows. Well, uh, you know, there, there's clearly impact. They're a big part of the market now, and uh, you know, they don't own every issue. So uh, there's some evidence that you know they'll trade the issues that are in the ETFs will trade differently from those that are not in the ETFs, and that's an, uh, uh, an effect that the portfolio managers and traders in this market try to take advantage of, uh, as the uh, ETFs are uh, selling securities or buying securities depending on the flows into or out of the ETFs, and. Uh, the, the the big question, I think the um, concern, again, has to do with what will happen during the next big downturn, and the fear is that the uh, downturn will be greatly accentuated because those ETFs will experience large redemptions. They'll have to dump securities onto the market, and that will worsen the downturn. What I would say about that is that uh, down markets in high yield are always ugly. Uh, they, they have been in the past. Liquidity dries up. Uh, dealers, the, you know, the, the brokers who are uh, making markets in these bonds don't feel any obligation to you know, stand there and lose money by making bids on bonds that are going down. So uh, they kind of step aside and bonds just fall, in many cases, below uh, their intrinsic value. Um, this has been true in the past, in, and some of the speculators uh, who are using ETFs today to get a position in the high-yield market, and uh, maybe for just a very short period, then looking to trade out, trade back in again at a later point, they were able to do that in the past with uh, uh, open, open-end mutual funds that uh, allowed in the holders to trade in and out. Some, some tried to clamp down on that. Others were uh, receptive and willing to let uh, them themselves be vehicles for these speculators. And uh, the other factor that's coming to the market is because of some of the regulation of the banks that has come in since the global financial crisis, liquidity has dried up quite a bit. Uh, the Volcker rule is one factor that's been pointed to. In other words, the banks cannot trade, trade uh, for their proprietary accounts but must limit themselves to being uh, intermediaries for the end investors. And uh, that, that has really reduced the liquidity a lot. So I think it's going to be impossible, even after the fact, to gauge how much worse the downturn was because of ETFs than it would have been in that contrafactual case where sure. the ETFs were not there. So... Um, uh, it's 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 a concern. Uh, the question is how much of a concern, how much worse is it going to be than it would have been other anyway. 
Ben, do you have an opinion as a model portfolio user sure. of ETFs? Uh, maybe you weigh in on, on that point? I mean, we did have a big sell-off, and that was in the fall of fourth quarter of 2015. We had spreads widen out to just over 800 basis points by February of 16, and high-yield ETFs, I think, handled that market environment quite remarkably. Volumes, uh, multiple volumes traded in the secondary market versus what was actually traded in the primary. And the creation redemption mechanism of ETFs and the presence of authorized participants and their incentives to keep the price tracking with net asset value effectively turns ETFs into more of a uh, pricing mechanism, real-time pricing mechanism on what the true value of the high-yield bond market is. Whereas with traditional open-end mutual funds, you, you are still working with stale net asset values. And, and redemptions out of mutual funds actually hurt or penalize existing shareholders because the portfolio manager has to raise cash to meet those redemptions. Whereas if you're an ETF holder, you're not affected directly by the redemption or, or addition of, of flows into the ETF because of the creation redemption mechanism. Marty, let me uh, ask you, let me switch gears here on liquidity from ETFs to just sort of investment strategies with high-yield bonds. Um, you know, a lot in ETF world is this factor-based investment strategy. Fixed income is a market where we haven't seen a huge adoption of, of factor-based portfolios. Is it something you would be an advocate for? Do you think quantitative models can work for the high-yield category? I mean, simple screens like quality factors for high-yield. I mean, how, how do you think about that as a potential avenue for potentially adding value over just the, the beta high-yield bond ETFs? Well, investors have for a long time looked at the market as segmented in the sense of, again, you have double B, single B, and triple C uh, as the main categories, and they behave differently. You have the greatest volatility in the triple Cs, and there are times when it's advantageous to have a heavy weighting there and times when it's not. Uh, so, Investors are conscious of that. They'll pay some attention to duration, um, the, you know, basically the maturity of the bonds, although it's not as direct a factor as it is in high-quality bonds. There's some attention paid to that. And then also by industry, investors uh, look for uh, overall trends uh, in addition to the bottom-up security selection. But the the bottom up security selection is always going to be a component you know it's not that easy to replicate a sector within high yield so uh, you do have to choose the proxies that you're using for these categories very carefully so it's a, it's a it's a real mix of uh, bottom up fundamental analysis and top down portfolio management strategies and uh, bear in mind that these are not as liquid as stock, so you can feed into a computer the data on the S&P 500 and say, all right, this is the slice of the market we want to own, and you know, to go out and automatically acquire that portfolio, that's much harder to do, I would say even impossible, really, in the high-yield market, given the lesser liquidity. Brad, I know we've done some research on that topic, and I know, you, you know you've done some work there. Do you want to just weigh in quickly on... Uh... Thirty seconds to a minute on, on your view on, on what we what you want to try to do there. Yeah, sure. So so I think that really our our core philosophy on you know really developing these strategies is that just because a company comes to market and issues a bond, we don't necessarily think that that should be in every investor's portfolio. So really, our approach is is basically creating you know a series of fundamental screens that say you know what based on your underlying fundamentals and, and based on where you're trading in the market in terms of overall spread and then adjusting that by the the calculated measure of, of how likely you are to default. We view that as, as more or less taking these approaches that a lot of active managers uh, have used and then we've created more or less a systematic approach um, to try to you know identify value in the market and identify risks in a volatile asset class that, that ultimately we think are worth taking. 
Yeah, certainly it's going to be uh, an interesting thing to follow over time. Can these indexes try to compete with the traditional cap-weighted bond indexes? Uh, Marty, maybe you could talk a little bit. I know your firm uh, that you oversee doesn't just focus just on high-yield bonds. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your firm and what are the income-oriented asset classes you guys focus on, the type of clients you're, you're trying to serve, and, and how you sort of try to allocate amongst traditional income, income places. Mm-hmm. We are uh, oriented toward investors who are seeking income uh, that tends to skew a little bit older. Uh, people have accumulated a lot of assets that they don't necessarily want to stop accumulating, but their focus is shifting as they uh, approach retirement or may already be retired uh, to generating income from what they've saved. And they equally importantly uh, don't want to lose what they've accumulated. So uh, the uh, goal is to get the highest yield that you can, subject to preserving the principal value. Now, um, when I say preve- preserving the principal value, that doesn't mean perfectly stable net asset value month after month. Uh, you can do that, but unfortunately, the uh, yield on that strategy is only about 1%, slightly under Right now, in, in, in Treasury bills. So uh, you have to accept that there is going to be some month-to-month fluctuation. Uh, the key thing that we're striving to do is to avoid permanent capital losses, which is, for example, the result of a bond default. Uh, you buy a bond originally at par, you may recover 40 cents on the dollar, but you're not going to make up that 60-point uh, loss by the bond getting back to par. So that's uh, the kind of situation we want to avoid. Um, so we use a uh, variety of assets. The preferred securities are the biggest part of it. it that's a market that's not, for the most part, a, a real institutional market. At least many of the issues are smaller issue size and uh, only a, a couple of hundred million outstanding and don't really work for big institutional holders. And as a result, there's somewhat less research published in these securities and some genuine opportunities arise. Things simply get out of line, and it may happen that uh, because they're somewhat small issues, uh, a few big sellers happen to come in for no particular reason at a, a certain time, and uh, and they get uh, get very cheap. So that's the biggest part of it. We also use uh, master limited partnerships, real estate investment trust, some bonds, uh, closed-end funds are a vehicle, as well as ETFs. Uh, for investing in some of those sectors that are very large uh, round lot sizes like in in the corporate market and um, then we we also include dividend growth stocks so they're not um, the stock that's yielding nine percent because the dividend is about to be cut but uh, stocks that have for a long time uh, consistently raised their dividend and should continue to raise it based on our analysis and that's a way to offset the loss of purchasing power over time. So you're getting some current yield, but you're also building in some growth in yield, which is very important, even though we're in a comparatively low inflation environment. It does, uh, you know, does add up. And, uh, you know, if you had retired literally on a fixed income 20 years ago, you would have lost 38% of your purchasing power. So I'd like to say you know, if you went to the golf course, they'd only let you play 11 holes. So uh, you, you do need that growth component in there as well as the current income. Well, this, is, uh, this has been fantastic. I wish we had more time with you, Marty, but uh, that's going to do it for our show today. Thanks for, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's really been a pleasure. Uh, we've been talking with Martin Fritzen of Lehman, Livian Fritzen Advisors on the phone. He's a real expert on the high-yield bond market and income and generally. Thanks for joining us. Got Brad Crom in the studio, Ben Levine, CIO of 3D Asset Management. Thank you guys for coming down to Philadelphia. Uh, you can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast as well. Uh, thanks to Patty Hall, our producer, Daniel Bruno, our sound engineer. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.